0: Hey, this is last Coffee House, and we are starting the Jordan Peterson reading list. Clean Your Room. The Road to Wigan Pier is the first one on here. We're still doing the same Harris reading list. We're just adding some more. I was really interested in the books that Jordan Peterson had on his list. And a number of them I hadn't either heard of or hadn't read. So I thought it'd be a good addition. The Road to Wigan Pier. It's by George Orwell. It was published in 1937. And we're just going to dive right into it. I was really interested as I went along. I had no idea what this was about whatsoever when I started reading it. I didn't read a synopsis or anything like that. I just wanted to dive in and it's got a lot of interesting stuff going on so it starts out it's in a couple of parts and it starts out kind of discussing a housing crisis and this is northern england Quote, the first sound in the mornings was the clumping of the mill girls clogs down the cobbled street, end quote. So obviously it's Orwell. He knows how to tell a story, but this is actually about real life. What he did was he went and traveled around with all of the dirty denizens of northern England to try to get an idea about how they experienced what was going on. And this was 37, obviously. So this is after the big crash amidst the Great Depression. I'm not sure where the economy was in 37. This was a good eight years after it all collapsed. So and I'm not sure the degree to which it affected England and how that compared to how it happened in the United States. But still, so he's he's trying to get an idea of how people are living in the lower classes. So it becomes it's part reporting from Orwell's experiences traveling amongst the lower classes in northern England. And part screed against and support of socialism, which is really interesting. And the second part of the book is actually highly contentious. So he discusses the housing crisis, migrant caravans, efforts by administrative officials to destroy the slums because they had become these dens of terribleness, and what that would do, and what the response would be, and how that would or wouldn't help. He discusses details and he discusses how little had been done when it comes to the housing crisis. So generally, his sympathies lie with the poor people struggling through the situation and he's calling for some kind of an action related to housing because there's just not enough of it but because I think because he has so much of a literary mind and a narrative mind there's a whole lot of flair to the way, the way that he represents what's going on here and he goes like into unemployment and how it, what it's like to be on the public dole at this time. He goes through how you calculate the dole benefit and one of the things that I saw a lot when you have means tested benefits you know like unemployment or welfare other kinds of benefits like that where there are certain requirements that you can't have you can't be too successful or be getting too much income and still receive that benefit that things happen like you'd have to push out older members of your family from the household because they have pensions or something like that because their income combined you know with yours or whatever would push you over the top for being able to get these means tested benefits i saw this a lot you know in my first legal Job. And he talked about, he even went into how people would feel inadequate and unemployed men who <laughs> wouldn't help around because they're unemployed, they have more time. They wouldn't go around and help with the chores. They would just kind of sit around and do whatever. And there was this profound effect of inadequacy or feeling of inadequacy of the men who couldn't find employment and situations where, because of the benefits that you were getting, you'd be able to get enough food, but you wouldn't be able to get enough to be able to buy oil so that you could cook the food. Of course, in modern America, as at least, even the worst of us, the most (laughs) destitute, there are still a whole bunch of safety nets they can rely upon. 1937 Northern England is very different from the poverty of 2020 United States. And one of the things I'm sure Ben Shapiro would be very... (laughs) Happy to hear me say is that when you had it would be better to have a whole bunch of churches and those sorts of things that are providing benefits and being helpful and getting people employment and providing food and all that sort of thing where we can collectivize on our own initiative instead of having it be a top-down thing through the government because of the, all these costs of administration and all this other sorts of stuff and all the waste that comes into it it would be better if we had a bunch of churches who are the ones who were inclined to to benefit people or be a benefit to people and support the community in that way because it's in everybody's benefit to have strong communities anyway so that's that's a big discussion a big part of again these are his experiences talking to people and dealing with this issue then he goes into like factories and talks about just the ugliness of industrialism fair enough for sure he talked about how future utopia furniture utopian furniture would be made of glass and metal in lieu of like wood he makes these prognostications about what the Future would look like it. I mean, he's uh, to some degree correct. I've mostly got metal and glass when it comes to my furniture, at least the office. What is this? Is this, I don't even know what this is made of. But definitely, still some wood and plastic is is a big part of it. I don't know the history of plastic. I don't know when it came about. I don't know when it became prominent. I don't know. I have no idea whatsoever. So <laughs> I don't know if he saw that coming. But he also curiously said that there would be no dogs. <laughs> That people wouldn't be have dogs because they like smell bad and (laughs) They're just gross and annoying. So people wouldn't keep dogs anymore. I think that was a little off base. And that people would have few children. He was right on the money on that one. Uh, the, the As the prosperity of a country goes up, they are less likely to reproduce. Then he goes into this talk about racism in the Burmese. And there's this funny thing about how the Burmese think that all white people smell like cadavers, which is not something that I heard before, but I could see it. I know Bill Burr made a joke about how people think that white people smell like wet dogs or something like that, <laughs> which is hilarious uh he uses this this was in 1937 this is hilarious he, he was talking about a, a guy said he didn't want Orwell's job because Orwell's just going around you know right hanging out with poor people and writing about it and orwell called him a teetotal cuck virgin <laughs> just laying the smack down in the 30s <laughs> the 1930s uh, like we that's one of our <laughs> like favorite words nowadays I can see somebody, except for the T total, because a lot of people don't even know what that means anymore. But the cuck virgin thing, I mean, I can totally see somebody nowadays using that. So that was pretty hilarious. Uh, he goes into, like, the cruelty of colonialism and talks about common lodging situations on the road. He used this phrase, immovable tyranny, which was interesting to me. I just have, right now, I just have a list of phrases that I liked. He called it uh, soggy, half-baked insecurity and decried the unreality of positions on Last question. So, uh, to some degree, like I said, later in the second part, he will criticize both people who don't like socialism and people who support socialism. He thinks supporters of socialism are often just oblivious and blind, soggy, half baked insecurities, the motivation. <laughs> And people who decry it uh, just put every all their eggs into capitalism that they have a problem too. He doesn't like them either. But I liked the way that he phrased a lot of this stuff. And then he had this phrase here. If you want to make an enemy of a man, tell him that his ills are incurable. Which is a very profound kind of an idea. And you could definitely see that when you just have arguments. Definitely. I mean, arguing is something I've been doing since, you know, the womb. <laughs> so it's definitely something that you see is that if you want to make somebody your enemy, tell them that they are ill, that there's something wrong with them and they can't cure it. And it could be true. You know, you don't necessarily know whether it's true or not, but you definitely see it. There's this, this function of shutting themselves off when you try to make an argument and you're telling them that they're sick and they can't do anything about it. So a really important idea, psychological idea and political idea. But then we switch into the second part where he starts, He's he defends socialism, but like I said, he doesn't like the people defending socialism. He has these three questions in of socialism are the appalling conditions described in part one tolerable and he answers no question two is socialism wholeheartedly applied as a world system capable of improving those conditions he answers yes and then the final question is, why then are we not all socialists? So it's it's a logical progression that he's putting out there and saying, okay, well, if you have these, then we have to follow to this. Of course, I would absolutely 100% just <laughs> call him out and call this absolutely ridiculous to think socialism would be the answer to these things. He doesn't have the benefit of hindsight of being from the 2020, 21st century and, and seeing what happened with the Soviet Union and Venezuela and China and, and all the countries, the only ones who were able to survive when they had a social Socialist situation were the ones who opened their economies up. That includes the Nordic countries. They had to be a capitalist country with socialist policies that are allowed to parasitize capitalism as opposed to just being pure socialist, wherein the government owned all the means of production or there was some kind of collective ownership of means of production and It took out the profit incentive. When you have all those things put together, that's not how you build prosperity. That's not how you elevate pro- poverty. That's how you completely squander the resources that you have have and lead to the starvation of millions and millions of people because you don't have the information to be able to do what you need to do. And because, uh, like the pigs in Animal Farm, you have a lot of people who abuse a system where they get an unbelievable amount of power to be able to do whatever they need to do, you know, because that's what you have to do. You have to manufacture equality for millions of people who aren't equal. And then they just end up abusing that system for themselves and uh, ruling class. Anyway, but that's his syllogism. That's what he goes through he says okay we follows to this so he says that people who reject socialism often he's i don't even know if he says often he's, he might have said always do it for emotional reasons so he suggests five major categories of class prejudice machine worship crankiness i can't remember the details of crankiness turgid language which is like highfalutin language and failure to concentrate on the basics so he has these categories and says that those are the reasons that people reject socialism so class prejudice is obviously self Explanatory. It's just people being discriminatory against people of lower classes, which obviously there's got to be some to that. I just, I was watching a video on Parasite and how in Parasite, Bong Joon Ho, the director, was trying to show the distinction between classes and how one class sees the other one. And a big part of that was the smell, was that I can smell that you're poor, (laughs) you know, that you're from the lower classes. And I'm sure that's a big thing, like in Korea, and I'm sure here, you know, in the United States and other places, it's you, there's this perception, there's a smell to poor people. And having grown up poor, I mean, I don't think I smelled like anything in particular, but I I do think that there's absolute validity to that. There's just a different situation, a juxtaposition of you're there, down there, and I'm here. It just goes from there. There's a prejudice about it you're, if you're poor, you're stupid, you are lazy, and you've, you could have had opportunities, but you just didn't take them. Now, in most cases, that's probably true. <laughs> there's a degree of stupidity. There's absolutely a degree of lack of conscientiousness. And I'm sure that if you went down the line and tried to figure it out, it would be mostly those things. Not being particularly bright and <laughs> not being conscientious and not putting the work in, being lazy, all those things as opposed to some kind of oppressive force that's keeping them from being successful but that's just my estimation i don't know <laughs> I don't know what the studies say on that one uh, the second category was machine worship so uh, talking about how people just believe machines will solve all the problems now for the most part obviously machines kind of do solve most of our problems but he had some interesting ideas about this that come later as we go down crankiness I can't remember it I can't remember the specifics of this category turgid language is like i said it's just because um, people of one class use a particular kind of language and people of other classes do not. And failure to concentrate on the basics. uh, I would say when it comes to socialism, I can't remember his argument in this category, but when it comes to socialism, the basics are the reason that you should be able to reject it. Socialism is trying to be a perpetual motion machine. It's saying that there are infinite resources and we can just give everybody the same amount. When in reality, you can't start socialism until you have a capitalist system that created prosperity, that gave incentive to make things more efficient you can't use socialism until you can parasitize capitalism and that's where we are now of course it's a curious situation because right now the leading person in iowa is an out and out socialist he calls himself a democratic socialist but this is like pure communism and socialism to the extreme that may get the nomination for the democratic i mean the body count wise socialism has cost more lives than fascism has over the 20th century it really doesn't work fundamentally the ideas undergirding socialism are absolutely terrible. You don't get to, from the top down, force everybody to be equal and when you take away the profit incentive and the texture of the skills between people and what they may or may not be motivated to do and the freedom, obviously, of people being able to do whatever they want to do, when you take that stuff away, you are completely undermining the way that humans function, want to function, and the way that things progress, and the way that things get better. You need an incentive structure, you need You need gradations. You need hierarchies where people who do better at things are have more influence on where things go. You you need that sort of a thing. So anyway, uh, but he goes into machines and he talks about how I love this is a profound idea as well, where machines take jobs so we don't have to do work. But then what you do? what is work? What do you do if if you didn't have to do anything else, what would you do? And there's this idea that everybody would just become poets and and painters but the reality is there's no fundamental metaphysical reason to be doing any one thing over any other thing and if you just, if you take work away, like he talks about how fishing for some people is leisure and for other people it's a job and that, that does, that's the same with virtually any activity you could do except for maybe using a cash register. I don't think anybody would use a cash register just for fun you know i'm sure kids do that though <laughs> But I think it's just so they can pretend to have a job. It's not like it's actually something that's <laughs> that's leisurely. And then he brings up oh he brings up this Wells book H G Wells so and Orson Wells not Orson Wells H G Wells he brings up this H G Wells book about uh, the it's like post apocalyptic or uh, dystopian or utopian or something like that. But how all the workers were sent underground. They do all the work underground, which sounded really interesting to me actually. Uh, they do all the work underground, and then everybody who gets the benefit of the work is above ground and just get that benefit. There, there are other ones like there's Elysium, which wasn't great. District 9 was great, but Elysium wasn't super great. And it was kind of about that. All the people like up in space or up in the sky or something. And all the workers down on the bottom. What was that other one that just came out? Oh, it was Bong Joon-ho again. Um, it was that one on the train. What was that one called? With Captain America. I can't oh, I can't remember what it was called. But that one again, it was about the class. There were the people at the front of the train, people at the back of the train, So it's a pretty clear analogy that has been all over there. But I really like this idea of workers shoved underground where they have to do all the work to benefit the upper classes. Then he goes into fascism. And we have to remember in this context, yes, he's being supportive of socialism and decrying the people who support socialism. And he's trying to sell it. But he's in a context of the early fight against fascism. You know, this is two years before Hitler took power. So or two years anyway, before Hitler invaded Poland, Hitler took power in the early 20s. Right, he had like 10 years before he actually did an invasion, but we're just in the early throws of fascism here, so it makes sense to be as anti-fascist as you could possibly be. So I completely get that. But he has this phrase about how anybody who recognizes capitalism as evil, saying that those are like the brethren, that he's supporting people who recognize capitalism as evil. And that's pure insanity. I mean, <laughs> capitalism is is not evil. It's the most vital, important institution except for, say, you know, individual human rights, that has ever come about in the history of the world world it's extremely important extremely useful and if he could see what we look like today from as compared to what they look like then then he could see what capitalism has done and i know we have just a swath of ridiculous people nowadays young people who are unappreciative of the work their parents did and aren't appreciative of work the work that founders did or all those horrible capitalists who make it so they can drive a car that's incredibly safe and cheap and plentiful and they can get from place to place without much of an issue. I know they're not appreciative of any of that stuff, but notwithstanding whatever they want to whine about, it's because of capitalism. It's because we structured it in this way that we got to the point that we're at. So obviously he's in a different, he's has a different viewpoint on history at this point. And I understand being so against fascism that you go to socialism. I get it 100% just like with Marx and uh, the people who tried to effectuate the Russian revolution. I get what they're trying to do, but no, we need capitalism. And one of the things, you know, if you analyze it to like grades or to sports, then it's much more clear. I love the grades one, but I also love the sports one. Like imagine you have a team and there's somebody who's scoring just they're scoring all the time. They're Michael Jordan, they're Kobe Bryant, rest in peace. They're scoring all the time. And so to make things more even, you're like, no, we have to give it to the guy who hasn't scored a single shot. So what happens? Then your team suffers because of it. If you give the resources to the guy who can't make a shot and turns it over every time, then your team suffers. It's not best for everybody. That's why capitalism specifically is trying to find the best role for the best people and has a structure to make sure that's the case. And whatever it's bleed over, you know, the abuses or whatever else, that's mostly what it does is try to get people into places that they're going to function the best. And so just like in sports, you want to pass it to Kobe, get it to Kobe Bryant. He makes more shots. He's more creative and he takes better care of the ball than the third string bench player who has never made a shot and can't hit a free throw and keeps trying to pass it to the mascot. You just just like in that situation, you need capitalism for this so, that's, that's Road to Wigan Pier. Like I said, part one, just observational, going through stuff. It was fantastic. It was narrative. It was interesting. And socialism part is interesting. It has some great ideas. I disagree wholeheartedly with most of what he has to say, but uh, but there's still so much interesting stuff going on. This was absolutely worth reading. Some of the criticism. The poet Edith Sitwell, I wonder if she's related to the rest of Development Sitwell, Sally Stickwell, and <laughs> Sitwell, I don't know. Poet, the poet Edith Sitwell wrote, the horror of of beginning is unsurpassable he seems to be done he seems to be doing for the modern world what Ingalls did for the world of 1840-1850 to 1850, but with this difference that Orwell is a born writer whereas Ingalls fiery and splendid spirit though he was simply wasn't a writer end quote so she seems uh, really pro-socialism but yes Orwell born writer 100% and it, it absolutely shows throughout the book so like I said just to go into my analysis here I think I mostly said it but the first part was all enjoyment it was deeply detailed exceptionally well written and it's just fun to read Orwell in general. The second part was kind of cleverly structured because he fought against people who supported socialism and people who rejected socialism. So I liked that. I mean, it was pretty merciless, uh his attack on both parties. I completely disagree. Uh, I understand the context of fighting fascism and uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I can talk about the body count of communism and socialism throughout history, but just Fundamentally, from a jump-off point, socialism, for the most part, is pure nonsense. The only thing that you can do is have extremely limited socialist policies that parasitize capitalist countries. That's the best you can do with socialism. So anyway, that's that's what I've, <laughs> that's what I've got. Road to Wigan Pier, George Orwell. This is the Jordan Peterson reading list. I enjoyed it a lot. We're going to have more books coming off of this list, and they're mostly going to be like Dirty and Dire and Dostoevsky and... <laughs> And this going to be like in the grind, kind of just soot covered stuff uh, as opposed to the shinier stuff on the Sam Harris reading list that's all about, oh, it's neurology and let's all talk about empathy and that. So, but I loved it. It was so much fun. Okay, that was Jordan Peterson. I'll see you on the next one. Okay, bye.